0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Mike Trigg, who's an experienced Silicon Valley executive and entrepreneur, deep domain expertise in marketing, sales, customer service, business development, and revenue generating functions, aspiring fiction author, UC Berkeley, MBA graduate. On today's show, we talk about what are some of the highs and lows of Silicon Valley, How did the 1996 Communication Decency Act Section 230 change the world? What is a venture-fundable company? How is everyone in a venture capital deal incentivized? Bitflip, the latest novel by Mike Trigg, that and more. All right, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Mike, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, I'm, I've studied about your, your, your past a little bit, but for our audience, can you tell us a little bit about your career up until this point?
1: Yeah, happy to. Went to Northwestern for undergrad in Chicago, worked a few years in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill for a senator from Michigan, which was fun. And then kind of heard about this internet thing, got really intrigued. I worked at MCI, the big telecom company, ended up moving to California, went to Berkeley for business school. And I've been a tech entrepreneur ever since at small companies, large companies. I've founded businesses, et cetera. And then during the last few years pivoted to pursue something that I always had dreamed of doing, which is writing a novel. So I wrote what I know. I wrote a book about kind of life in, within a tech startup in Silicon Valley, and, and that book came out in August.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Going back to your early career when you just discovered or heard about the internet and when you came here, what was life like then in, in the Valley? And did you ever take venture capital invest or did yeah. you ever raise capital? And what was that like?
1: Yeah, I... I always knew that entrepreneurship was what I wanted to do. I didn't really have the name for it growing up, but I was always creative and doing things like that as a kid. When it first crossed my radar, I was in DC. It was this policy wonk term of the information superhighway and cyber this and that, but it immediately struck a chord with me. I distinctly remember when the Netscape browser came out, it was, that was sort of the aha moment for me of like, ah, okay, I get it. Information is digitized. You can get you'll be able to get it whatever you want, wherever you want, and I was incredibly enticed by that. My transition was i'll go to California for business school, which I did that was during the dot com boom i I was at berkeley from ninety six to ninety eight and so I came out in the heat of the, the dot com explosion and it was a great time to be here, obviously. it was there were tons of companies getting funded. It was an incredibly exciting time in silicon valley and yeah, I joined a venture back startup that was doing one of the first web based CRM software, customer relationship management software products, and we got acquired at the heat of the boom. I think it was March of two thousand or something like that, an obscene amount of money. That was the bug, right? I, I caught it, and I ended up doing that from then on. Going out of school there, it, right into the
0: startup ecosystem. Was it what you expected? Was it kind of what the rumors were talking about with you and your classmates going, "This is what startup world is"? Or was it completely different once you entered?
1: Yeah, I knew I needed to be on a learning curve. And so that was why I decided to do business school. You know, I took a course there in entrepreneurship and venture venture financing. So I got a sense of the mechanics of how that worked. But I also felt like I want to learn the ropes at a bigger company. So I mentioned I'd been at MCI, which at the time I think was like 40,000 employees, it was huge. My first job after business school was at 3Com, which was another huge company. I was a product manager and I saw that as an appealing way to sort of learn every element of a business. You're sort of a little mini business owner within a bigger company. And so I did that for a few years, but I always knew directionally really what I wanted to do was get into earlier stage stuff. And more on the software side was more interesting to me. I've done all manner of that. I've been a founder, I've been a co-founder, I've done consumer, I've done enterprise, I've done deep tech, I've done very consumer tech type stuff. So it's been a great A fun career, a lot of ups, a lot of downs, a lot of challenges, some great wins and some hitting losses (laughs) along the way. And that was a little bit what I wanted to write into the book was to kind of impart some of those words of wisdom and observations that I'd had about how the tech startup industry works. Those observations, just wondering, can you give us maybe a little bit
0: of inside information on people come to Silicon Valley, one of the first things they do is, we have to raise capital. They right. go out and, and they talk to a thousand angels, a thousand VCs, wherever they get a check, and then things change for them. Yep. What insights can you share about what really happens when you take that outside money?
1: The first advice I sort of tend to give young entrepreneurs is the odds are incredibly stacked against you, right? Like you just need to go in kind of eyes wide open about what are your actual chances of success? What's it going to take to get there? What's the fall off from pre-seed to seed, seed to A, A to B, B to C? At each of the 80, 90% of the companies that make it to that point, don't make it to the next round of financing. And and, and I think there tends to be a little bit of perception that, oh, I'm smart. I'm going to make it. It's very, very hard to do. And it's very easy to sort of feel bad about not making it when the reality is 99.9% of companies don't, sadly. So that's sort of the the first advice I give. This the second advice is that really not every company is a good fit for venture-backed startup. Venture capital is a very unique asset class. It has very specific requirements for what they expect as a return. And the, the simple dynamics which any any venture investor will give you is that of 10 investments they do, seven go bankrupt. Maybe one or two kind of give you pennies on the dollar back or a small return, but you're hoping one out of 10 is going to be your breakout winner that's going to return the fund and then some. And so the dynamic that that creates for a lot of venture investors is they, they really need to find stuff that has that potential to be the one out of 10 businesses, right? Otherwise, if they know it's not, that's going to be their biggest reason to pass. I've been at companies that, and founded companies, I was, I was doing a gaming startup and I felt, hey, we're doing pretty well. We've got product, we've got, we're generating revenue, all, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't at that kind of hockey stick level that a venture investor needed to see in order to say, yeah, I'm going to put some serious funds behind this. So that's the biggest challenge, I think, for a lot of startup companies is they just either don't have an idea or that idea doesn't have the potential to be that smash hit that venture investors really need. How is everyone in this ecosystem, how are they incentivized? That's another big theme of the book is that the incentives of venture-backed startups can enable, if not at times, sort of encourage bad behavior potentially, right? And we've seen a lot of those types of scandals in the last year, especially. There's this sort of interesting dance that goes on between entrepreneurs and investors, which is the hype, right? No investor wants to hear your idea for what what it is today or even what it'll be in like a year from now. They want to hear what it really could be. So give me the big vision, give me the hype. Why is this going to be the next Google, the next Facebook, et cetera? And what that kind of tacitly encourages is the entrepreneur to kind of fake it till they make it or exaggerate their numbers. I just saw an amazing case with, I think the company called Frank with JP Morgan. They acquired them and it, Appears, JP Morgan is claiming that they fabricated users. So Theranos, everybody knows about. You know, there are these sort of extreme cases where it isn't quite fake until you make it, it's fake until it you're fraudulent. It becomes a distinct untruth. And so I think because of the nature of venture investing and the structure and the frankly lack of oversight, because Let's face it, your board, when you're a venture-back company, is usually you, maybe your co-founder and then your venture investors. So everybody sort of has the same incentives. There's not anybody kind of coming in as an independent board member to provide true fiduciary oversight. That can kind of foster with the wrong set of people exaggeration that ultimately can lead to fraud.
0: And, and I read the article, or at least know about what you mentioned with J.P. Morgan there, and I think it's pretty hilarious that an investment bank can't do due diligence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, on a company. with that. Do companies just kind of get, how do I say this? Does due diligence get overlooked when they think the company's doing great?
1: I think that's one of the real challenges, right? If you're a venture investor and you're on a board, the dynamic for that partner, usually they have partners in their own fund and then limited partners who are investors in their fund who they need to answer to too. So there is a tendency to like, don't give me bad news. Let me believe the most optimistic scenario because that venture partner might need to do a little bit of spinning within their own fund or with their LPs about how their investments are doing, right? They're, they're Getting successful outcomes there will help them. And the nature of venture investing, of course, is you know there is a little bit of a FOMO herd mentality to it. And so if they're sort of too transparent or honest with the real metrics of the business, that might discourage that Series A company from raising the Series B. I don't want to call it a Ponzi scheme. Every venture-backed company needs to have that next round of financing that's going to come in, do an up round, infuse more capital into the business. And I think one of the things that we've seen from the dot-com boom to today that's really different is the stages of those kind of private financings really increase, right? In the late 90s, your outcome after a Series D or Series E was you went public. And now with, I don't even know what the current count is, 1,500 or so unicorn companies, clearly there's a desire within those businesses to not be subject to disclosures that the SEC, FTC require of public companies, not have that kind of scrutiny convince still private equity type investors that they're really worth those billion dollar valuations and keep everything kind of under the hood for a longer. Ultimately, those businesses usually do go out, but you, you're, you've seen in the last year, FTX being sort of the most extreme example, hopefully that we'll see in our lifetimes maybe, but like where that just is terrible for the business ultimately, right? Because they never were subject to the scrutiny that they would have been as a public company. It's
0: crazy to think not even too long ago, companies were going public all the time once they hit a $50 million valuation or, right. or something like that. Right. And now you're like, wait, that's CMA nobody. round. That. Like- right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that's bad for the industry. I think that the, there's, there's a bunch of dynamics that have created this. There's obviously been a ton of capital in there. Interest rates have been extremely low. And there's a, a lot of reasons for sort of the glut of venture capital and, and higher up the chain kind of private equity. I think it's been bad for businesses too, because I think that a lot of businesses raise more capital than they need. They sort of feed on their own story and their own hype, and, and you have a mindset as an entrepreneur of the best time to raise capital is when you can. So if people are backing up the dump truck, it's very tempting to take that next round, that next round, the next round. And you know, that's probably been another big lesson out of my career is I think the businesses that struggled that I've been at, it was as often it was because they raised too much capital as not enough capital. Right, both things are a danger to a startup because if you raise too much. It really limits your exit potential. Can you dive to deeper
0: in that? Because what you just said right there, it is a huge thing, but I don't think we've talked about it on the show. Yeah. the What limits your exit by raising too much and having too high? Could you dive deeper
1: in that? Yeah. Yeah. Happily. The, the If you want to Google it, the word you should Google is preferences, right? And there's a very good reason for this. But when venture investors put money into a business, they typically, in, in the terms of their deal, will... will specify preferences that if there's a exit of the company they get preferred share they have preferred shares and they're going to get money out sometimes even a multiple of their money out before the common shareholders get anything and that dynamic that that is a plot line in this book right the business gets to a point where they're trying to sell the company they've got an offer to sell but it's for less than the amount of capital that they've raised and it's kind of this aha moment for Sam the protagonist and, and the other employees at the company of, oh, we, we think we're going towards this great outcome in a, with a sale, an M&A transaction, but really the only people who are going to make any money off that is the in venture investors. And they have some unusually pernicious terms in the, in the agreement that happens in the book. That's quite common. And there's a good logical reason for it. Logical reason is if I'm a venture investor and I write you a check for $10 million and tomorrow you sell the company for $9 million and I only get my 10% stake or 20% stake or whatever I've invested... You know, that's not fair to me as a, the venture investor. So there's a good reason for preferences. I'm not saying that they don't belong there, but they can oftentimes be kind of a hidden or misunderstood thing, especially, usually not by the founders, but especially by the employees who might not realize how big an exit their company needs to have for their stock to be worth anything.
0: We, we a little bit in the past, we had Jotham on our show, who is a, a lawyer talking about employee contracts. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting in some of the story he sh- he shared about on the exit, there's nothing left for the employees and right. the basically the c-suites like they should have negotiated better in their contracts right, right. <laughs> but, but that's it for for these companies when they're getting different rounds of capital on you know, ABC, do the investors that put capital in, do you think that they kind of already know who the next round is going to put money in
1: i that's an interesting question i i I think increasingly, yes, they do i I think and that happens for a bunch of reasons. It might be sort of an in, intentional thought process of who are we going to pitch this to in the next round it can be unintentional hey fund XYZ did the next round for company A let's approach them for company B right these are small enough ecosystems that you tend to work with firms and and people that you've worked with before so it can happen for very innocent reasons like that this is kind of another thing that comes up in the book where there's a before that Tell, tell the audience oh, the name yeah, of the book. Yeah, sorry, and, 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 and. I, I keep mentioning it. So the book is called Bitflip. It's a novel, by the way. It's not nonfiction. And Bitflip, for anybody who's in the industry, might sort of recognize that term. It's when a bit when binary code goes from zero to one or back again, that's a bit flip. And so I'm sort of using the title. It's kind of a metaphor for a change of heart or a change of mind. And that's what the protagonist goes through in the book. And it's what I went through as an author when I was writing all this. But yeah, so... I sort of lost my train of thought there, though, where, where what, what, you would ask me a question.
0: Fundraising first. rounds that the next VC knows.
1: Oh, right, yeah. right. So yeah, as soon as that first venture investor writes their check, right, they have a very strong incentive to keep it going, right? Hopefully they invested their pro rata rate in, in subsequent rounds, but they want to put the best shine on the rose. They really come around to the entrepreneur's side of the table at that point. And many venture investors feel like they're even more invested than the founder at that point because the founder can to some degree tap out that venture investors really that they're connected to that thing forever at that point so i do think that if i were a venture investor i would very much want to have clear line of sight or of what does this what are the metrics this business needs to hit in order for it to be an appealing to investors in the next round and who are the investors who focus on that stage? These sectors, I'd be starting to warm them up and, and tell them how great the company's doing. So that's very much part of this ecosystem. You'd mentioned
0: that the VC sit going from the other side of the table to the same side of the table after they, they write that check. Do you think the kind of the expectations for VC's involvement has, has changed over the years?
1: I do. And some of that is because starting a company today, especially if it's a software company, is not nearly as capital-intensive, truly capital-intensive as it used to be, right? If you think back to the original venture capital model, it's like, we want to do a semiconductor company or a computer company. That requires quite a bit of capital. There's no other means for us to get that capital other than this newly minted thing in the 60s and 70s of venture capital. Today, with AWS and all the tools that are out there and software suites and and languages that just make developing apps and, and websites easier, faster, cheaper. You don't really need that much capital to get something to market and and I think you've seen sort of the whole process sort of back down a little bit, right? Where the expectation even at pre-seed round is you you probably have functioning product already, right? Because you only needed a couple a couple programmers to get it to that point. And so I think that that's been a little bit of a hard dynamic for the venture capital model to sort of adjust to because funds have gotten by and large bigger and bigger. So they're needing to put more and more capital to work. There are sort of fewer and fewer good companies for them to put it to work into. And so I think you see this dynamic where there's a lot of seed stuff that's funded and never goes anywhere, kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall. And then the the companies that show any inkling of breaking out, capital just Infuses into those things, and they they get these huge, huge valuations. And candidly, what do you think happens when a 25 year old suddenly feels like they're on a billion dollar company? I I, I would behave; would have probably not had the been a Boy Scout if I thought I had that kind of capital. And of course, new as well as secondary markets and other kinds of things that create liquidity for early founders and early employees ahead, reaching that outcome into the public markets as things have stayed private longer. So I think I've, I've almost argued, and I don't have an answer to what this is, but almost argued for a different asset class a little bit than venture capital, because I think there's a lot of promising businesses that could be good, sustaining, long-term, healthy companies, but really don't get afforded that chance because the venture investors who are putting capital in, need it to be not just a 10% IRR, they need something that's 10X, 20X, 100X their money. And not every company is going to have that kind of growth trajectory.
0: Do you think with more, maybe family offices getting in the picture for investing, do you think that could be a solution?
1: Yeah, I think you've you've seen backfilling of different things come in. Family offices, angel investing, obviously has become filled a, a big void in the market. It needs to start with, essentially LPs, whether they're individuals or p- people putting funds into it, or in the case of the family office, a wealthy individual, where they have a different return dynamic and different return expectations, right? The venture capital game is an IR game where you can't raise your next fund. So you're going to take commitments from your LPs. You're going to wait to actually draw that money down as long as you can. You're going to want to deploy it as fast as you can. And then you're going to want to get those companies... Exited in some way as, as quickly as you can. That you know the only way to get a good IRR is to compress the time frame as much as possible as you get your the biggest return possible. And so again, that that's great and it's appropriate that the financial markets have that avenue. But not every business should be seeking venture capital. And I, again, I do believe that too much sort of capital has maybe gone into venture capital versus other paths to funding businesses. That's interesting. Do you think the mindset maybe of entrepreneurs
0: might pivot from unicorn or nothing to actually I'm okay with a with a just moderate, sustainable, growing business?
1: I think that is the in some ways most important question an entrepreneur needs to ask themselves when they're starting a company, right? Is I do limited angel investing myself. And that's usually one of the first questions on my mind is yeah yeah, and I sometimes oversimplify it of are you doing a venture back business or a lifestyle business? because you could be fully committed to it. You could have a growing, healthy, profitable business, but that still doesn't make it a venture fundable business, right? And I do think that for some entrepreneurs, they're either too limited in their view or too unwilling to take risks that will lead to that hyper growth, or they just the idea just doesn't inherently lend itself to venture investing. And the hard part in Silicon Valley, so much emphasis and so much attention goes to those darling unicorn, venture-backed, one-in-a-million kind of growth companies that it's sort of hard for entrepreneurs to tell themselves, like, it's okay to just have a good, healthy business. It's very easy to get swept up in the mindset of, I've got to be this unicorn because that's such a pervasive expectation here.
0: I'm almost picturing this self-help group, these people sitting around in a circle. <laughs> One person stands up and says, I have a business growing 10% and like people are clapping. right. Like, right, right it's okay. Right, Hugs it's okay, are-
1: we're here for you. Yeah, I've lived through that. I've lived through businesses where I'm like, wait, we're hitting our number, we're growing, we're profitable, but we're unfundable from a venture standpoint, right? We're, because the growth just isn't there. That's really the only metric that matters. And And I think that is another thing that, for better or worse, and entrepreneurs need to consider right because if you're if you're take, if you're going down that venture track and you're taking venture capital you need to be willing as an entrepreneur and a founder to take aggressive risks with a business that you know that your most venture investors would tell you we'd rather have you really swing for the fences and potentially strike out than take take it cautiously and grow grow sustainably right the whole model relies on that kind of breakout growth. And sometimes breakout growth requires big bets, big risks that could candidly kill the business if they don't work out. But that's sort of the only way sometimes to get that, the kind of growth required to be a, a true venture, venture capital-based startup. For companies like that,
0: they're swinging for the fences. You're at a company that got acquired. Mm. What are the highs and lows of either that process and also, I guess, the end of the process when
1: you get acquired. I've lived through good acquisitions and bad acquisitions. <laughs> Each one is a little different. The biggest acquisition, a multi billion dollar acquisition that I experienced, I would say there was a little bit of, uh, I don't know, how would I characterize it? Almost buyer's remorse, right? There was a little bit of a feeling of, were you guys worth the premium that we paid for you? And very often the answer is not. Now, the, 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 that's oftentimes a product of, just supply and demand in those kinds of businesses, right? A hot company in a hot sector with a lot of potential choirs, they kind of hold the cards and and acquires often you know this better than anybody, right? The acquirers often will have to pay a premium for that. Whereas conversely, if the business is sort of struggling and moving sideways and a little bit desperate, eh, the the buyers hold the cards in that scenario and they're not going to pay a multiple. And so, there's a lot of psychology that goes into it and a lot of ego that goes into it, right? The people who either bet on the company or, or pitch the company or sold the company, they all have to sort of deal with the aftermath. That example we gave of, of Frank with JP Morgan, that's got to be a little bit of a weird dynamic, right? Where, where the JP Morgan folks are so convinced that they kind of got the wool over the, pulled over their eyes that they're filing a lawsuit against the company and the founders. You hope it doesn't get to that extreme. But I think, I think it's very hard in any kind of private market transaction for both sides to feel like we got a great deal. This was definitely worth it. We definitely didn't overpay or underpay. It's hard to get right because you don't have, neither side has perfect visibility. It's always sort of an unknown how things are going to be, how technology is going to be used afterwards. One of the companies that I co-founded ultimately was acquired by Cisco. I left before it got incorporated into Cisco, but Cisco I think was an example of a company that developed very intentionally a whole methodology and muscle group around ingesting acquisitions. I, I, I knew somebody from business school who worked in their acquisition team and they would do things like nest that new set of employees in with the corporate headquarters, really get them. It's like almost grafting a branch onto a tree or something, right? You need to really be thoughtful about that process. And I think a lot of acquiring companies aren't thoughtful about it. They sort of view it for its external hype. They, they're really excited about it but they don't really follow through all the way on what's it going to take to incorporate this technology, these people, what is that transition planning really going to look like so that we get the benefit that we thought we were getting when we acquired it.
0: It's it's funny. It's almost like we just want that little spike in the stock when we acquire them. And then after that integration, someone else's issue.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's another plot line in the book. There's a big company, Prism, not Oracle, but where it's sort of like hey let's acquire it and let's get the bump and let's move on there there and i think that's not a totally invalid reason to acquire something there can certainly be a lot of what drives any stock price is hype and enthusiasm and everything else but i think if you're really trying to build a long-term growth business you know you need you need to be thoughtful about the integration process now i mentioned cisco i do happen to believe that integrating hardware is easier than integrating software. Software, even though it's malleable and easily changed and everything else, it's kind of this squishy, amorphous thing. And very frequently at any software company, sometimes when the software engineers who wrote it walk out the door, you don't even know what you have anymore. I, I suspect, I don't have any inside information, but I suspect that's very much going on at Twitter right now where all these infrastructure engineers and data ops people and people who really know how that thing works have left the company in the last few months. And with that departs a tremendous amount of knowledge. More often than not, the software executives I've worked with, VPS of engineering and stuff, kind of come to the conclusion of this is spaghetti code. I, we have no idea how to modify, fix it. We're going to have to rewrite big portions of it We're obviously progress so quickly that it rapidly becomes just out of date. And so I think that can be a real challenge in software is is to figure out how are we going to integrate this software product into the rest of our suite if we're a bigger company.
0: Speaking of companies growing, yes, you have to have the CEO in that with the mindset taking risk in that, but what about the employees themselves? How, How do you employ, recruit the right employees to take these risks, the right employees for this stage of the company the right employees to get the results that you, that you want.
1: I think that's the answer used to be dangle stock options in front of them, right? I think that for a long time, the promise of Silicon Valley was, hey, I'm going to be at this great company. We're making the world a better place. And I've got this stock option grant that's going to be worth something. And we all heard stories about the one in a million companies where the front desk receptionist was a millionaire, right? Based on those stock options. I think that that myth has been burst a little bit with more and more people who've been on, the, been on that ride and didn't know the denominator in their, in their stock option grant of what percentage of the company they actually owned. I happen to believe that the human brain has a very hard time mathematically with pies with something that's a hundred percent and it can never be 140%. Like there can only ever be a hundred percent of that pie of stock of a, of a company. And we human beings tend to sort of just add whatever the, the stock number is and just assume that more is better. More could be worse if the company is diluted and issued a ton of shares. And so, so I think that that, promise between employees and founders and, and their venture investors has been broken a little bit. And I think in the last years with COVID and work from home and all the disruptions that we've all lived through, I think it's caused a lot of kind of quote unquote rank and file employees to step back and go, wait a minute. I, I don't know if i abide by the moral mission of this company. Some of the companies have been shown notably Facebook and Twitter and others to have some negative externalities to them as well. And I don't know that I'm. this is going to be life-changing for me financially, necessarily. I'm working long hours. It's a very demanding de- job. It's stressful, everything else. And I think that equation's really gotten sort of thrown out of whack. And you see the embodiment, of, co- of course, has been Elon Musk with this trend I've heard recently f- referred to as bossism, this belief like we've coddled employees in Silicon Valley too long. They expect free beer and ping pong and meals and huge stock grants, get back to your desk, get back to work, bust your asses, et cetera. I I don't know that that's working so well. His edict at Twitter was, if you're not willing to be hardcore or whatever his phrase was, get out the door. (laughs) And A large percentage, clearly more than he thought, sort of was like, okay, see you. And some of that is the options that the other companies that people can go to desire to do things themselves desire to maybe take their foot off the gas a little bit and have some of the work-life balance that they they got a glimmer of during COVID. And there's a lot of reasons, but I you can palpably feel the dynamics sort of between employees and employers changing.
0: And as long as you keep the kombucha on tap.
1: <laughs> right, right. That's all I need.
0: <laughs> when do you think it was kind of that companies went from doing good only to now maybe having that opposite view?
1: This is I think one of the biggest changes in, in the mindset for employees, and it was a big thing that factored in for me. I, When I moved to Silicon Valley and pursued a career in tech, that was the value proposition was you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have this potentially life-changing wealth that you make out of being in that industry, but you're, you're making the world a better place. You're bringing technology, you're bringing efficiency. There are no kind of externalities that there would be in financial services or manufacturing or petro or other categories that had known negative effects. Big oil, big pharma, et cetera. Now it's big tech too, right? I think in the last few years, I really mark kind of 2016 a little bit as a moment where people recognize how... Social media platforms in particular were sort of being exploited. The discovery of the Facebook files where they were very well aware of the, the negative effects on mental health, especially for teenagers with some of their platforms. The, the any business that is essentially selling attention, right? That, that's what any advertising-based business is and Google, Facebook, et cetera are all attention-based businesses, right? They make their money off advertising. You, you, the only way you can grow at some level is to get more time, more clicks, more attention so that you can sell more ads and, and keep growing your revenue. And so you can see at a macro level why at day-to-day implementation, it's, hey, product manager, XYZ, your job is to increase daily page views by this or keep time on site to, to that. And a bunch of little micro goals in service of that macro goal of revenue growth, everybody kind of loses sight. They're kind of blinders on with their little fiefdom and their little KPIs, but they can kind of lose sight of the fact like, oh, I guess my job now is to addict teenagers to watch more TikTok videos. And that, that's, that's in fact how those businesses really manifest. What do you think
0: about the Twitter, Facebook, all these companies grabbing your attention, that communication app, I think it was like 1996 or that law that, how do you think that, first, if you could elaborate on a little bit more, but but how do you think that's impacting everything now?
1: Yeah, far from a public policy expert, but I was in Washington, DC around the time that that act was installed in 1996. It's the Communication Decency Act. And it's, I think it's section 230, if I'm remembering correctly, is, a provision that made tremendous sense at the time which was basically that as a provider of internet services you are not going to be liable for what people essentially do on those services right so unlike traditional media companies who could be sued and have liability for spreading untruths facebook twitter other social platforms have never really faced that right and and the logic at the time was we don't want to have liability, legal liability be a deterrent to companies building the future and, and creating these great things. That's a very different, we're in a very different world right now. Those companies are the biggest companies in the world. Those executives are the richest people in the world, right? And so to protect them and shelter them from legal liability, I think is terrible. You know, you see Twitter getting rid of content moderators. It's like, what? I, I, I worked at a huge social networking site, High 5 which was mostly outside of the US, but at its peak, it was a top 20 website in the world. And I saw firsthand, you see sort of the worst of humanity, honestly, on some of these platforms in terms of what people say, what they share. The idea of reducing content moderation is horrifying. And I think that particular act is one that needs revision, right? And I, and I think, frankly, a lot of tech companies probably would support revising that because you don't want to be the one company that has a higher legality or threshold than all your competition. I think if we could sort of collectively raise the the bar about what we expect and the, and the accountability that those platforms have to keep misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, et cetera, off their platforms, that'd be a good thing for the industry. Now, the challenge, of course, is that's just the US, right? And and the, the internet is a very much an international thing. Is TikTok going to be subject to the same laws that Facebook is or not? We're in a situation right now where a lot of US companies are abiding by GDPR and other regulations in Europe that are more stringent than they are here. And so there's a US challenge, a legislative challenge, but there's almost a global legislative challenge of how do we regulate this industry at a worldwide basis? And, and let's pivot
0: just a little bit. You said you're a, a minor angel investor. Yeah. Wondering, when you're talking to companies, the conversations, have they changed over the years?
1: Sadly, probably no. I do think that a lot of entrepreneurs come in with the single-minded purpose of raising venture capital that sort of, for whatever reason, from what they've read in the media and what they've experienced from their friends and, and seen in the ecosystem of Silicon Valley, that sort of defines success for them, right? And so the pursuit of that is still... Widespread. In many cases, it's healthy, right? Because striving for that and the scrutiny and the process of pitching your idea to a bunch of investors and refining your idea based on the feedback that you're getting from them can be good. It can really help you refine your story. It can push you to try new things. But I won't name the company. But I'm a, a angel investor in a company that is sort of in this exact sort of challenge, right? Where they're they've got a very healthy business, it's growing well, and the founder. Just doesn't feel quite comfortable really putting all the chips on the table and frankly the the financial risk that that presents to to him personally right this is his baby it's a really hard decision it's it's easy to not want to do that and not not sort of go for what you need to go for to to raise a venture round and my advice to him has been like that might be okay let's let's see if we can fund this other ways can you be self-sustaining can you get it to profitability control your own destiny and those those are that sort of its own struggle and presents its own whole set of challenges for an entrepreneur. But for some businesses, and this one might be one of them, it might be the best path.
0: For a business in that situation, do you think it's easier for them to go back to the angels and say, listen, we've kind of pivoted our mindset. We're not going to do the hockey stick. We're going to go kind of moderate growth. Or do you think if they actually had that one VC, that institution, they wouldn't even be able to have that conversation?
1: I think that's the challenge is like, what is plan B, right? It's pretty hard. I've sort of tried, I tried to do this with one of my startups. I raised some angel investment about, I think I raised about 400,000 of angel. And we were in that mode where it was like, all right, we've got revenue. We weren't quite profitable. So we needed more cash into the business. And who do you go to for that check, right? It's co- collecting it. Most angel investors are investing twenty five, fifty thousand dollars 50000 $100,000 kind of on the high end for a lot of angels. Yeah, you know, there's some, there's kind of a category of like professional angels and syndicates that are doing a little bit higher levels. And there's micro VC firms that are kind of filling that gap as well. It's almost as much work as an entrepreneur to raise that twenty five, dollars $50,000 check as it is that $5 million check. And so it can be pretty grueling to pass the hat and collect a small amount of funding to get you to sustainability. So it, it ends up, that's where I sort of feel like, gosh, I wish there was another class of investor in here who could come in, write a check more in that kind of million to $2 million range, which is sort of too small for a lot of venture funds, but too big for a lot of angel investors. And I don't know, maybe I'll go, maybe I'll go start a fund that does that size deal. There you go. <laughs> exactly <laughs>
0: Investor author, investor, <laughs> and, and,
1: and, uh, and, or a venture capitalist, you name it. It's good to pivot every three or right, years. Right, exactly. Keep it fresh.
0: <laughs> All right, now let, let's dive into this book. Tell us, why did you want to write a book? Why spend that much time allocated to it? And yeah. for our audience out there, what is the time allocated to, to creating a book? <laughs> oh
1: God, I don't know if I want to answer that last question. Why, it, it was brewing in my head for a long time. I sort of tell the origin story of this book as I would get home, when I was in regular work mode and I over the dinner table with my wife, she works as well, and we'd share stories about our day. And I'd tell her something that was sort of funny or amusing or eye rolling or whatever about what I'd experienced. And she kind of had this profane of you should write a book. You should write a book. This is funny stuff. And so it started as kind of a collection of anecdotes. And then I kind of leaned into it. I I started writing. I'd get gotten about a hundred pages down, but I just I was Finding that struggle of I was trying to start another company at the time, and it was very hard to say, all right, I'm going to ignore my fledgling startup for today and spend the afternoon writing. And so I just wasn't making progress as fast as I wanted to. And really kind of what got this thing to become reality was COVID in some ways, because I was working on a startup at the time. And COVID happened and it disrupted everybody and we had to pivot the business. And then we were struggling to raise a next run of funding ourselves, kind of in that exact gap that I talked about. And we decided to shut the company down. There's just three of us. And I thought, if I'm ever going to lean into writing full-time, I'm already at home. I'm already unemployed. I might as well make a run for it. So I took the plunge kind of in late 2000, it was. And finished the book found worked with an editor found a publisher and it finally came out in August so it was it was a great fun to write the book is not, it's, it's not a tell-all memoir. It's not autobiographical. There's certainly a lot of anecdotes that did really happen in my actual professional career, but there's no sort of, as the disclaimer at the front of the book says, there's none of the characters are based on real people. They're all sort of composites or amalgams of different kinds of characters and behaviors that I've witnessed over my 25 careers, doing, 25 year career. And I think for anybody who is in the tech world, that really, it really resonates with them. A lot of people have been like, Is that based on so-and-so? No, I'm glad that it feels so authentic to you that you feel like it could be, or you could envision that kind of situation.
0: Can you share with us a situation that maybe the main character gets in or or something that's relatable that we go, okay, I can see that happening in real life?
1: Yeah, I think there there are many, but the kind of the inciting event at the very opening of the book, the, the main character, Sam Hughes, is a number two at a startup. So he's a a kind of middle-aged tech executive, feels like he's aging out a little bit, working for a much younger founder and kind of keeping the wheels on the tire of this business that's got some hype and some momentum, but is also having the typical struggles that most startups have. And he's thrust into, in the opening chapter, speaking at Saster, the actual event Saster, where the CEO is supposed to do it. He calls him and says, I I can't do it. You got to go. And I thought, what a fun way for like a corporate thriller to kick off. I didn't want, there, is, there are a couple of people who die in this. For the most part, it's not murderers, murderous people running around a corporate environment. So I thought, well, what would be a fun way to, to kick it off? And for many people up there with fear of death is fear of public speaking, right? And so I thought that's kind of a fun in that environment. Plunge him into this, and Sam kind of has this moment, which I've frankly had when I've been sometimes on the dais. And there's sort of this performance art that happens. Everybody's sort of humble bragging about their company and how great they're doing, and so on and so forth. And he kind of just snaps, and sort of truth says what's going on and how the valley is all sort of messed up and everything like that. And and he ends up getting fired for that sort of outburst. And I I thought that's kind of that's spot on because. There is a real unwillingness in the valley to sort of admit the emperor has no clothes at times, right? To, to be critical, to express those kinds of uncertainties and doubts about that anybody should have about a business. It's like this constant Kool-Aid drinking that everybody is in mode that everybody's in. And that, that kind of kicks things off. But there are so many scenes. Even though the characters are fictional, a lot of the locations in the book are real world places. They're Dutch Goose in Menlo Park, Bucks in Woodside, Ferry Building in San Francisco, on and on and on. And one of the things I did to sort of promote the book and bring it to life was I shot little videos at about 20 locations that appear as scenes in the book and talk about not just the scene in the book, but also a little bit of the history of that location or why that's a noteworthy place in the lexicon of Silicon Valley. And so that was a ton of fun to do. And, and again, just kind of visualize it for the reader. And if someone wanted to, to purchase a book, you can get it. Pretty much anywhere books are sold, it's obviously available on Amazon, paperback, ebook, or audiobook. But I've had incredible support from, especially local Bay Area bookstores. It's available at Books Inc. and Book Passage and Kepler's, my local bookstore in Menlo Park. It's available everywhere, and then of course people can go to my site to get information about the book. I've got a newsletter on MikeTrig.com, and and I've got another book in the works. So. Glad you got the, the domain name. I, you got to put a plug in, right? <laughs> All right. And with your 20
0: years experience, 25 years experience here in Silicon Valley, what is one thing that you wish you knew back then that you know now before wrapping this up?
1: I think a big thing that I sort of struggled with myself is enjoying the process versus enjoying the outcome, right? I think that there's, that the Valley by necessity of the startup ecosystem becomes, you know, you become very exit focused, right? And, and a lot of one's sort of personal self-worth starts to really res- ride on, did I have that exit? Did I have that big windfall? And that's a tough place to be, especially when you look at the infinitesimally small odds of being successful with a venture-backed startup. If, if that's your mindset, it can be... It can lead to kind of a, a challenging mental space. And again, that's, if, if I were to strip down to one word, what the book is about, it's about ambition, right? Sam, the protagonist kind of, it's, it's a cultural critique of the, the Bay Area and the tech environment. But at the core, Sam is both the protagonist and the antagonist, right? He, has to, he sort of has to grapple with his own sort of unbridled ambition and where that takes him. And it ultimately takes him down sort of a slippery slope ethically, morally, et cetera. And I think that's sort of what I would tell my younger self is, in, and I, I feel like I have, in fact, in, I do enjoy, I get a kick out of that early, early stage stuff, but you got to enjoy the process. You can't just be focused on the outcome or it leads to a, a challenging place for yourself. And, or as we've seen in some of these scandals, bad behavior and bad outcomes, I land you in prison if you're not careful.
0: Fantastic advice. We're going to have all that information, well, the book, the links to Amazon, and that in the show notes for this show. Go to the Silicon Valley for the website where we keep you up to date with everything that's happening on the show. And for everyone out there, when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley Podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisitions, growth capital. Contact me, find me on LinkedIn, Sean Flynn SV, and we'll have a conversation. But with that, Mike, I really want to thank you for taking the time this week to be. On the Silicon Valley Podcast. My
1: pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on, Sean.
0: Thank you for listening to
1: the Silicon Valley Podcast.
0: To access our resources, visit us at theSiliconValleyPodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making
1: any decisions, consult a professional.